Thursday, February 4th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Gauthier, and today our main focus is going to be one championship, specifically their financials that were filed with the Singapore government in regards to their 2019 fiscal year, as well as their involvement in a trial program with the government to bring back large live-scale events. We'll also talk about Dustin Poirier gaining 700,000 Instagram followers following his knockout win over Conor McGregor and the superstar rub in MMA. And we'll wrap things up with discussion on President Joe Biden ousting 10 Trump appointees that will have an impact on federal labor unions and probably on MMA or might have an impact on MMA, depending on when where things go with the Ali Act and things of that nature. So we've got timestamps at the bottom. We've got them over here. Nope, here as well. And go ahead and jump to your favorite spot if you want to. Otherwise, let's dive in. So first thing I want to start off talking about today is one championship's financial statements. Now, if you haven't heard the news already, they just recently filed their 2019 fiscal year statements with the Singapore government. So that's from January 1st of 2019 all the way through December 31st of 2019. Why are we just hearing about this now? Well, for these types of statements and this information, they generally are delayed. In this case, they got an extension. So I forget what the specific amount of days they have from their uh, meeting. They have a specific meeting they have, and then they have a certain day range that they have to file these statements. And they got an extension this time around, whether it was COVID or something else. Basically, it put it off for an entire year. So we're just now learning about the 2019 fiscal year in February of uh, 2021. It's still very relevant to the promotion right now, though, because the biggest highlights and takeaways from these financial reports are that their accumulated losses have grown to around $228 million US equivalent. I think it's 305 Singaporean dollars. And then depending on what conversion rate you use, I used 0.74 Singaporean dollars. I think John Nash used 0.75. So his was a little bit higher. But again, same Singapore dollar rate of 305 Singapore million, 305 million Singapore dollars in terms of accumulated losses. They've never operated at a profit, but that's a massive jump in terms of your accumulated losses. That came from 2019, because in 2019, you had roughly the equivalent of $97 million in loss, nearly $100 million in loss after tax for just that year. That's ridiculous. That's huge. And that's a big jump up from around the $60 million US dollar equivalent that they had in 2018. That, that's, you know, a very, very big increase. So where is all this money being spent, right? Because one thing to note, another takeaway here is that their revenue jumped from 37 million Singaporean dollars to 62 or 63 Singapore million dollars. That's a big increase in revenue. But to see that much in revenue, but then your net loss grow by $40 million US uh, after tax, it, there's got to be some drain somewhere, right? Well, that drain is really in terms of the expenses, specifically marketing. So to give you an idea of what the UFC spends on their marketing budget, and this is from 
John Nash's piece because he does go more into detail. I have a piece out there talking about the big highlights, but he, of course, is the original OG of this stuff. And and you should definitely check out both, but check out his for sure. Um, looking at the marketing here for 2019, one's marketing expenses were 116% of revenue. The UFC in through 2012 to 2014, marketing was 9% of the UFC's total revenue each year. In 2015, it was 8%. So again, to break that down, just using simple math, that means that if both promotions made $100 million, for the UFC, they spent about $8 million or $9 million on marketing, kept about $90 million for other stuff. One championship would have made $100 million and then spent $116 million on marketing alone. That's a crazy marketing budget. And yes, you do see a lot of their stuff. You see promoted tweets, you see promoted things on Facebook, all this stuff. But that's just an absurd amount of money on marketing. Now, they tout these huge viewership numbers, right? They talk about being the most uh, viewed social uh, on social media. They have... Uh, I think it's tubular has said, yes, they're, they're the number one social media sports property. That's a, you talk about billions of potential viewers. That's a big thing they tout constantly. But <laughs> when you're talking about your, your actual dollars and cents to get that title, if, let's say that they are getting those ridiculous viewership numbers, right? To spend 116% of your revenue on, on, on marketing alone, I mean, I, you would get laughed out of, as a consultant who has worked for other companies where marketing budgets are set and usually tightened a lot of times because they can't understand the intrinsic value of marketing because it's high. It's hard to tie like, oh, I got business from this specific marketing campaigns, depending on what the campaign is, things of that nature. But that's a completely different tangent. To to spend that much money on marketing, I would get laughed out of every single company I've ever worked for heartily. And, I, and I've worked for some companies that have really needed my help, that have been a little bit desperate for help or wanted me to work that maybe it didn't work out, but like I've been desperate for help. Even them would have been, no, you're insane. Like, get out of here. What are you talking about? Because how could you possibly spend more than your total revenue on marketing and expect to get so much out of it in long-term rewards that it's worth it. I can't think of a single scenario where that's possible. I can't think of a single scenario where even if I have the most successful marketing campaign of all time, even if I have a marketing campaign that's 10 times bigger than Got Milk, if I'm spending 116% of my revenue on that marketing campaign, there's no way I recoup that. Not for years upon years upon years. And this also comes at a time where in, in December, Chatri was on in an interview where he essentially said, yeah, we're about 12 months away from, from profitability. Now, he said that before. In 2017 or so, he said that before. That, never, that didn't really happen. And, you know... Of course, when you're you're running a business, you're promoting it, you're you're trying to pitch to investors, which is a huge part of what one championship needs and which I'll get to here. You you have to say that stuff, but th this is just bonkers crazy. This is this is very 
very bad from optics, at least in in terms of in in terms of investor optics, it should be like, wait, what's going on here? Like, why would I ever give you money? But they do keep manage managing to get investors. How is that possible? Well, let's talk about some other parts of the financials that were revealed because that's going to help explain why one championship keeps getting investors coming back. So another key metric to look at here is return on equity, which essentially gives you a company's profitability and health as it relates to shareholder equity. It, I'm not going to go into it too much in terms of you know how to break it down, but it's a much more true measure in terms of how you relate to your peers in a particular industry. So I'm going to use this ratio, return on equity, a lot of times to say, okay, we're at 4%, but the industry standard is six. So that means we're lagging. Or we're at 8% and the industry standard is six. That means we're ahead of the other companies in that industry. Against our competitors, our profitability and our financial health is stronger. <laughs> One championship's return on equity was negative 158.29% in 2019. It was already negative in 2018, around 40% or so, but to drop by 100 18%. I mean, that's that return on equity is abysmal. And that's not to say I would be curious to see where PFL's ROE is at, right? Because they've been in that, that startup stage as well, really relying on investors and and you know going that whole route. So they could be similar, but even then, I don't think they're at that level. I mean, UFC and Bellator, I would be shocked if they were anywhere near that level. I'm assuming UFC's return on equity is positive. I mean, probably maybe single digit positive, who knows, but um, at, at least positive. I, I would be very shocked about that. And Bellator's, you could go either way because they did really turn a profit the past year or so. Uh, I would say it's probably positive there too. It might be smaller, but either way, I mean, th this type of, if, if I'm looking to invest in a MMA promotion, I'm looking at things like ROE or Roshi Capital Employed because I want to know how this company is doing compared to its competitors. Because if I have $1,000 and I get to pick between the three and one is sitting at 5% return on equity and the other is at negative 158, you best believe I'm going with the 5% one unless there's some really sweet deal of negative 158. So that's pretty bad too. But where things get interesting for one championship is their current ratio, which generally hovers between zero and one. Um, well, now nah, that's not true. One is kind of the standard number for current ratio where it talks about your upcoming debt obligation. So bills that you pay or owe within, within 12 months. So obviously, uh, Let's think about it this way. You know, if you're paying rent every month and you've got a 12-month lease, you know that by the end of that lease, you have a set amount of money that's going to be due, right? If you have a, rate, a current ratio of one, that means you have exactly enough money to pay that rent off. That means you are, you are perfectly able to meet that debt obligation. And we're talking about if you only had to pay rent. I know hypotheticals, but just to give you an idea. If you have less than one, so let's say you have 0.5. That means you probably had half the money that you needed for the entire year. 
Doesn't mean it can't go up. Doesn't mean it can't get money injections, but that kind of signals, okay, you might actually be in trouble in terms of paying that debt obligation by the end of the year. If you have more than one, that means you can pay that obligation several times over. In one championship's case, they have a current ratio of 5.93. So that means that they can pay everything that they owe within a year. If they only had to pay rent and that was all they ever had to pay, they have five times the amount that was owed for the entire lease. They can pay that off and then they got plenty of money left over. Now, a lot of times when it's too much over one, that means that a company is not utilizing their assets really efficiently. You never wanna go way over one because again, you really should be buying assets or buying things that you can get long-term investments on really, like get money back in the long-term. And, and then, meet your debt obligations just as they come due so that that other money is being invested in other areas to help grow the business or help make you more profitable. Again, another way to think about this is that it's much better to have, you know, if if I owe $12,000 for a year, it's much better to have $12,000 in general. It, it's better to have $12,000 in cash to pay that obligation and then have $30,000 invested in the stock market rather than have $42,000 just sitting in cash. Because I'm going to get $30,000 in the stock market, I'm going to get a much better return at the end of the year than if I just have 0.0001% on my checking account, right? And this is assuming we're not using the money for other things too. So that's kind of how the current ratio works, where if you're really too far over one, you're probably kind of like missing out on maybe utilizing that the way you should. In terms of, and again, current ratio is in regards to assets and liabilities. So we're, we're talking about buildings, uh, different intellectual property, things like that. They have, again, a six current ratio. So they, they're not really holding any debt. They're not in trouble of, they've got a major burn rate, which we'll also talk about, but, but they're not like creditors knocking down the door. They have 12 months to pay this and they're, they're in trouble. Honestly, if they did through 2019, 2020 might have actually killed them. So we know they're they at least made it through 2020. But they they are able to, you know, from debt holders, they're in a really good spot because they've mostly financed themselves through investors. And with investors, again, that goes into the equity and and really if I buy money, you know, if I buy a stock share that at $50 and then it drops down to $10, I don't get to come back and say, "Hey, you owe me at least $40. You promised me this." No. That's Sorry, man. It it dropped. GameStop. You want to talk about craziness there? There you go. If I bought GameStop. If I bought GameStop at three hundred dollars, and now it's down to ninety, I believe. I'm out of luck. I don't get to say, "Hey, man, you told me this was going to the moon. Uh, where's you know? You said it was going to hit a thousand dollars a share. You owe me nine hundred and ten dollars right now. No, it's not how it works. So, so that's good for one. That's very good for one, James. It is concerning that in 2018, their current ratio was almost 20, which was, that's very, very high, to be honest, and kind of a head scratcher, and that it dropped down to six. Again, it means that they're still very much in a good spot debt holder wise, and it's very possible that they've really gone all out on investments and long-term capital, but given that their total assets also were halved, more than halved, I don't think it was invested in a way where, oh, that ratio dropped because 
we really went all in on building a new state of the art facility like the UFC PI or something similar, or, or we, we, you know, really invested in this particular property and that's, that's where it is. It's possible, but I, uh, I don't think so. Uh, and if you look at, you know, John Nash's breakdown again, he has some more details in there as to why that's, that's probably not the case. And it's kind of, you know, different expenses and things get in the way of, of that making a lot of sense. But anyway, the, the point is they are good from a debt perspective. So when it comes to the investors and one championships business future, really, because that's, a, a huge question mark here. They've got a pitch to people that, hey, yes, we have burned through all this cash. Yes, we, I mean, their burn rate right now is insane. Uh, yes, we are, are going all out. We're investing a bunch. Our ratios are not the healthiest, especially our return on equity. But we can deliver XYZ. The question is, what can they sell at XYZ? Because mind you, I mean, Sequoia, right, as, as a, a VC, a venture capitalist firm that invested in one, they're not dumb. Tomasic, they're not dumb either. They're, they're not newbie venture capitalist firms who are going to just throw money every which way and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So one is clearly selling something to them. What that specifically is, though, is, is, is hard to say at this point, because other than their, their social media presence and the fact that they're in an emerging market. I think that's their, their strongest pull right now is, Hey, you know, we are in, we, we've kind of got a, a foothold here in the next emerging MMA market. If you haven't realized by now, Asia, Russia, the Middle East, that side of the world is now the new focus in terms of customer acquisition for MMA promotions. It is it is by far the biggest hotspot right now. And one championship has a very good presence there. Is it good enough to beat the UFC? Yeah, that's kind of debatable. But, you know, it, it, if I go to... Hmm. If I go to some of these countries in Asia, there... It is far more likely that the promotion, the marketing, and all of that is going to be far more heavy on one championship rather than the UFC. If I think of MMA, I'm going to think, oh, probably one championship rather than the UFC. At least that's the narrative we're being told. That's what I've heard from other people. That Feel free to drop comments if you feel that is incorrect. Uh, if, if you live in any of those areas, Please let me know if that's that's totally off because that is what I'm hearing. That would make sense based on the way that they're, you know, just going all out marketing, especially places like Burb, uh, <clears throat> especially places like Myanmar and things like that. So, uh, you know, it, it it's one of those things where that's something you could pitch to an investors, you especially a VC is say, hey, we've got this foothold. It's a growing global sport. We've got major social media trends. And and VCs love social media trends. They love they love to see proof in terms of customer acquisition before they put money in. So if you're touting these mega social media numbers, and they're they're accurate to some degree, which we do have again, like Tubular saying, yes, one championship is up there with impressions and all this other stuff. That's something that a VC will take notice of and will say, you know what? Okay, 
you know, you're, you're not profitable yet, but again, a lot of companies VCs invest in aren't profitable at the start. So, all right, we, you've got a plan. You, you've got this huge social media impressions and, and following and gathering. Sure, we'll go ahead and, and invest in you. And clearly something is happening because even in 2020, right, they raised 70 million in another serious funding. They still had to cut back 20% of their workforce. I think that might've been part of, I don't know if that was part of the deal. That can sometimes be the case. Uh, when you raise a new series of funding, it may come with certain stipulations that might've been one of them. But the, the point is there's enough interest there from parties that should be smart enough with what they're doing with their money, given how much they're investing, that you'd think that they have a good pitch here. But all that being said, their financials are, are really a bit of a mess, at least for 2019. And they have to find a way to either spin that when 2020 comes out, spin it in a way that you know you can't really argue or fight, or you have to, you know, which which I think they'll probably do touting some of these broadcast deals. I think that's a big thing. If you listen to Chachri's interviews, he keeps talking about broadcast partners and looking at that. You got TNT, one having all those events on TNT. I think they're trying, they're looking for a big broadcast rights deal similar to ESPN and UFC. I think that's really what they're holding out for. And it's possible they may land that. If they do, my guess is financials turn around pretty quickly. But if they don't, They've got to be able to spin some of these financials. They've got to be able to cut costs. They've got to cut back on marketing and find different ways to get that revenue growth higher without posting a greater net loss. I think it will be crucial in 2020 for them to post at least an improvement overall in their after-tax I mean, ideally you would want profit, but really their after-tax net income for their loss to be less than it is in 2019. To have a, nearly $100 million in an after-tax loss, and then in 2020 to have an even greater loss, I think that is not necessarily the writing on the wall, but I would start to say that the writing is, is being painted on the wall. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's bad. That would be very, very bad. So they, they've got to find a way to spin this. They've got to find a way to cut those costs to make, to land a big broadcast deal, whether that's getting TNT to invest more in them and to really up the num numbers and up the money, uh, whether that's finding something else similar to what they had with uh, BR Live, right? Getting something like that going where you get some streaming service or some cable channel throwing you you're not going to get UFC money at what $1.5 billion or whatever, but you could get even, even, you know, think about it, even 50, $60 million for several years that erases a huge amount of, of the loss that we saw that made pretty much the lost growth from 2018 to 2019. And I think that's really what they're holding out hope for is they're pitching these VCs. Look, we've got the social media impressions. We've got the stars. We've got our grand idea. We're really pushing all this stuff. We're hitting it on all fronts. We're going all out here. We're going to land a broadcast deal. Don't worry. Keep investing with us. You've already sunk in this money, much money. What's another 10, 20 million. Once we get the broadcast deal, we're all good. I've got to imagine that's really what they're holding out for. I can't see another play here. Unless there is something going on that, that it, 
is beneath the surface that's even deeper that we just don't have privy to, which again, some of those financials, you know, these barter transactions and things that are now kind of hidden, that's concerning. Uh, if you don't know what the barter transactions are, go to the sixth episode of, of the Five Business Podcast where I had John Nash on and we talked about those. You know, unless there's something else going on here that we can't really see, I it, it's a broadcast deal play, 100%. I can't think of another thing that they could do to really turn the ship around at this point. And I think, again, if they keep going, they're, they're probably headed towards bankruptcy or being dissolved eventually in the next if they keep growing at the current burn rate they are, I mean, they, yeah, I would give it two years. Easy. They've got to land something here. So we'll see what happens with them. You know, one championship is is great for the industry as a whole in terms of competition. You know, we saw that with Demetrius Johnson and Ben Askren trade. We saw that with Eddie Alvarez and Sage Northcutt and these, these stars really moving over to the promotion. It, it's good. It helps fighters out. It helps the sport out. It forces every company to raise their game when you've got another competitor out there making these types of moves. So I hope they do something because right now it's it's not looking so great. And to wrap up the one championship discussion a little bit here, I want to look at a tweet from Tom Taylor or Tom Tay MMA. He, he, if you don't know who Tom Taylor is, great journalist. He's been doing a lot of stuff um, with South China Morning Post. He had that interview with John Jones at the end of the year, this past year. I mean, the guy is killing it. But he sent out a tweet in January 29th that really caught my eye, and it was this. One Championship's recent shows in Singapore have been part of a pilot project with the government, the goal of which is finding a model that can be widely implemented so that more large-scale events can resume safely. UFC's rumored Singapore card would be one of those events as well. So... And, and then it quotes a uh, Straight Times article by Sazali Abdul Aziz. So here, here are my thoughts on this. Similar to when the UFC goes to Abu Dhabi and the deal that they struck with the Abu Dhabi Board of Tourism, long before Fight Island was, was in Dana White's mind, they had struck a deal to host shows in Abu Dhabi. That agreement obviously got modified once coronavirus hit and they wanted to do Fight Island. But in those instances, the government is paying the UFC to really host the events there, right? It's it's not on the scale of the Super Bowl, but think about it, or, or the NCAA tournament for US people, but think about it in those terms where the city that gets to host those events in the U.S. almost always pays and bids to say, yes, I will pay the NFL this much money so you can host the Super Bowl in Indianapolis or what have you. And the idea is, is that they pay the league to do this or they pay whatever to do this. And then the tourism they generate from it will more than make up for the cost. When I read something like this, where one championship holding events is part of a government pilot program, the first thing I think of is my guess is one championship is getting cut a check from the Singapore government. You know, that's the type of thing that, especially if it's run by the government as a project, they're almost certainly footing, if not the entire bill, a good chunk of it. They're not just going to say, oh, yeah, you volunteer for this? Great. Because 
you know, that helps one because they can get events back up and running. But no, I I don't buy it. My guess is they're getting cut some kind of check. That can help with their financial woes as well, especially because in 2020, we know that they had to cancel shows just like everybody else for a certain period of time. So I think that's an important thing to point out here is that most likely they're getting paid some undisclosed amount to run this pilot program, be part of, you know, whatever government forms and information they need to provide all of that stuff to the Singapore government. I I think it's a smart move on their part if that's the case too. Because again, we just went over their financials and how crazy those are. Getting paid for the government to hold events and kind of prove and and show a way to hold large-scale events again, not only gives you a paycheck, but also gives you great publicity. Like, yes, we pioneered a way to have concerts again in Singapore. That's the way to spin this is, oh, yeah, look, we got events up and running. It's all good. And now you're starting to bring back concerts. Yes, that's because one was part of a government pilot program to bring this stuff back. It makes a lot of sense. So that's why I don't know if we'll hear anything more on this, but do expect them to be getting a check to hold some of these events, because that would be my guess. I it's possible they're not, but I, I really think this is a way that they can up their publicity while also getting paid to help drive down some of those losses that they've had. So next subject I want to touch on is Dustin Poirier gaining 700,000 Instagram followers following his knockout victory over Conor McGregor. So we've talked about this before, but this is, again, a prime example of the superstar rub, so to speak. Conor McGregor is still a massive draw. Love him, hate him, still a massive draw. We discussed the pay-per-view numbers he brought in last week, which was around 1.6 million is what they're estimating. Again, we're not going to go into pay-per-view accuracy. We talk about it too much already on the show. But, I mean, that's a huge draw. And and now you've got Dustin Poirier gaining 700,000 followers on Instagram. Let me just check one thing here because... Yes, Dustin Poirier, Instagram. How many followers do you think he had before that fight? Well, his total is, well, now it's up to 2.6 million. So I'm not sure exactly where it was before. My guess is that it's, at least we'll go off of that 2.6 million. My guess is he's probably gained more than 700,000 at this point, probably up to 800,000 more. But so even if, if, if 2.6 million and 700,000 were gained just from the McGregor fight. That's easily a, a, what, 25% increase, more than 25% increase of followers just from beating one guy. Makes sense. When you look at, say, Israel Adesanya, another person that a lot of people, hardcores, love to call, call a star. Yes, when he beat Robert Whitaker, his Instagram followers went up, his Twitter followers went up, but not at that crazy rate. And that's because with Dustin beating McGregor, you get the superstar rub. I wouldn't be shocked if the next headline, headliner pay-per-view that Dustin Poirier fights in that isn't named Conor McGregor or Nate Diaz, he is a significant draw. I mean, it, it, we see this over and over again. Holly Holm. Prime example, knockout Ronda Rousey, still pulling the highest ratings on ESPN against Irene Aldana. 
even though she's had a middling record since. She's she's really alternated wins and losses since that historic victory. Dustin Poirier, it, it's the same type of thing. He will get a bump from this. How long that lasts, we'll have to see. But I mean, given his terrible work outside, side of the cage, given you know everything that he does, my guess is it lasts for a while, if not for the rest of his career. And that's because Connor is still a draw. Connor will be a draw until the end of his career. I have no doubt of that. He, he's hit that peak. But the more people he loses to, those people will get bumps. They won't be as significant as, say, the Nate Diaz bump, right? You're not going to see Dustin Poirier getting that same level of fandom instantly. The first person who beats a superstar gets the biggest rub by far. But that doesn't mean that beating a superstar, even after they've lost in a big fight like that, doesn't help you out or isn't still significant. I mean, Poirier's going on hot ones now. I mean, that's that shows big. That 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 is a mainstream crossover. I can't think of how many friends I have that don't watch MMA that watch hot ones. I mean, it's important. It it is important, and it shows that the rub is. Again, just further proof that the superstar rub is a thing. That when you have a megastar, when they lose, the person that beats them takes some of their shine. It, it's just how the, the sport works. And I'm, I'm glad it happened to Dustin. He's a great dude. He does so much, again, with his charity work. It, it's awesome to see. But if you need further proof, and if, again... Some of you still ask me, well, you know, Holly Holm's not a draw. She is, dude. She still is. It's crazy. It's crazy given how much she's lost and how many title fights that she's had. And don't get me wrong. I like Holly Holm, but but it's kind of nuts how much of a draw she still is from beating Ronda Rousey, from having one very significant victory. It's, It's just how it works. Diaz, same way, right? Diaz hasn't fought, you know, (sighs) Diaz hasn't fought in the same, I don't even know how to really phrase it. He's fought tough dudes, don't get me wrong, but it's not like he's fighting at a frequency that a normal UFC fighter would and he's fighting, you know, these guys that are unbeatable or that, you know, are, are about to, you know, become world champions. And I know a lot of people are just saying, what about Jorge Masvidal? Well, no, I'm including him in that because Masvidal got, got easily beaten by Usman. I think Masvidal struggles. I think he's, he's in the top five, top 10 welterweights, but he's not, he's not an up and comer. That's, you know, gone 10 and oh, he's not on a Tony Ferguson type win streak. He's not a, you know, perennial title contender waiting to strike. That was Masvidal's ticket to the title, was beating Diaz and getting that last bump that he needed, the BMF belt and all the promotion the UFC gave him. So when you look at Diaz, again, he's not fighting like a normal UFC fighter would in terms of frequency, in terms of he's talked a lot about, yeah, I'm coming back, and then fights have fallen through. What against Dustin Poirier at UFC 230? But the rub is still there. People will still tune in for a Diaz fight. I know casual fans that refuse to watch fights and then will call me and be like, wait, is Nate Diaz fighting? When he fought Anthony Pettis, who Pettis was, again, 
yeah, alternating wins and losses. It didn't matter. Diaz is on. Okay. That's just how the superstar rub works. There's more proof, more proof of that here with Dustin Poirier and the social social media following and then getting on hot ones. I, I vow to you that the next person Dustin Poirier fights, not named Conor McGregor or Nate Diaz, that pay-per-view will do better than the average. And that doesn't mean it's going to be, you know, a million, 800,000. It might not even be 500,000. It might only be 400, whatever. That's still better than the average, especially behind the ESPN Plus wall, right? at least from the numbers we know. Again, thanks ESPN Plus for that. But point remains, Superstar Rub is real. If you don't believe so, let me know in the comments why. Or if you have other examples, please let me know in the comments of, of the Superstar Rub. That if you know of other com or other examples of that, please let me know in the comments because it, it's it's proof. MMA math doesn't always exist. It is correct, but that that principle, it's there. It is there. Last thing I want to leave you with today is U.S. President Joe Biden has asked for the resignation or fired. 10 Trump-appointed members of the Federal Service Impasses Panel. So the Federal Impasses Panel is essentially a group that is designed to help federal unions and their employers work out any contract disputes, union contract disputes, avoid strikes and things of that nature in terms of the federal government. UFC is not federally employed, not sponsored by the federal government, you know, doesn't impact them directly. But what this action really shows from Biden is that he's taking a strong stance to be more pro-union. I mean, to remove essentially all of Trump's appointees to this panel to say, yes, we're going to replace those with more pro-union picks just really gives a, a big bolster to the idea that Biden is, is all about bringing back unions, being pro-unions, being more union-friendly. And so what this signals is to, again, something like the NLRB, where he already asked for Trump's appointed NLRB head to step down and has since been fired, which, as I mentioned at the time, will affect, you know, if we get into a, a labor dispute or a union dispute with the UFC. It was part of Leslie Smith's reasoning for, you know, filing a complaint and then it got rejected and then saying there's no point appealing to all that stuff because... You know, the NLRB at the time was very anti-union. This just, this type of decision to remove those appointees on the federal services impasse or federal service impasses panel really drives home Biden's commitment to that ideal. He said it a lot and a lot of politicians say a lot of things and then get in office doesn't happen. But this really signals like, no, he's dead serious about it. And so where, again, this can tie back in is the Ali Act and unionization of, of professional fighters, in, especially in the UFC. I think right now, if you had something like the Project Spearhead type of organization or the you know MMA Fighters Association really full force or at its height or peak, this would be the prime time for it because th this would be the type of presidential administration i would be jumping up and down for you know super excited overjoyed for if they're making these types of moves so will that really translate into you know the ali act expansion being passed or uh you know the nlrb reviewing a unionization 
type of complaint uh, for the UFC? We can't say. We they, they've obviously got a lot on their plate with coronavirus getting you know relief and everything else going on. It's hard to say where that falls in terms of the list of priorities and how hard that will be to get done. But this to me really signals that if they can get the right legislation in place or get enough fighters to collectively get together and say, yes, we want to unionize, they've got probably their most favorable chances from a federal government standpoint than they've honestly maybe ever had, at least at least ever had since this discussion has been brought up in the past decade or so. It's, it's, it's 20 times more favorable than the Trump administration. And it's, I don't know that I would argue it's necessarily more favorable than Obama, but I, the Obama administration, but I kind of want to say it might be the case here. So again, could be very important later on for fighter unionization and the Ali Act. Will it? Only time will tell on that one. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for listening. Uh, please hit that like button. Please hit that subscribe button. If you're watching on YouTube and you haven't done that already, hit the notification button, the little bell. If you're listening on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, what have you, again, always appreciate it. Hit me up with any questions. Uh, you know, one thing I do want to ask you guys, and I want to ask your feedback for on this one is, you know, it's been a while since I've had some guests. I'm still working on getting those going. But is there anything that you want me to cover or is there any particular type of segment you want me to do on this podcast? I'm all about, you know, committing to this podcast, upping the level of it, getting you the information you want to learn about. Are there any topics that you want me to cover? Cause I will gladly research them and hit them. So, you know, let me know in the comments. Uh, let me know on Twitter at all day OJ, Instagram, all day OJ, you know where to find me. It should be right. No, man, I'm just bad at pointing out stuff. It, it, if you want me to explain why I'm so bad at pointing at things and just my lack of overall coordination, let me know. But as always, really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, really appreciate the feedback and love and only bigger things in store for the rest of the year. So until then, get money. Mm -hmm.